Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Uh, we'll get there in just a minute. And uh, just sort of foresh- foreshadowing what this morning will look like. We're going to spend some time kind of going back and forth between some Old Testament and New Testament texts before we sort of arrive at the end, which is our application. So, uh, this might seem like a bumpy road. I hope none of the campers get lost along the way, but there will be application and some significance, I hope, at the very end. So, stay with me. Um, We have arrived in Hebrews chapter 7, as we've just read, talking about this guy named Melchizedek. Uh, I have a very good friend who's been trying to convince me that it's pronounced Melchizedek, so that I would look foolish in front of all of you, um, but I've remained strong, and is, it's Melchizedek. The actual pronunciation is like, if you actually speak Hebrew, it's different. I'm not going to butcher it because, um, yeah, I'm not going to do that. So uh, we're talking about Melchizedek, and one thing that's interesting about where we've gotten in chapter 7 is that if you sort of follow along thematically with what the author is doing, it's almost as if, I would argue, that he's, he's doing all the things that he's doing to lead up to this point that will then set the tone for the rest of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 2, he mentions that, we, that Jesus is our great high priest. He gives a little bit about what that means. And then again in chapter 4, he says, he's our great high priest who we can now approach with confidence, who sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And then in chapter 5, he, he just says it right out. It says, you've thought of a high priest this way, but actually this great high priest is one after the order of Melchizedek, which sounds a little bit like a title to a Harry Potter novel, after the order, you know, Jesus and the order of Melchizedek. Oh, you, you get me. Anyways, uh, <laughs> So he says, after the order of Melchizedek, he pauses briefly to address some spiritual maturity issues and remind people where their anchor and their hope should be. And then we get to chapter 7, and it's like, ah, all this work was just to get here and talk about Melchizedek. And this guy, Melchizedek, is sort of a confusing character. And the reason why he's just a little confusing is because many of the other people that we've talked about in the book of Hebrews have a lot said about them in the Old Testament. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Levi, all these different people that he mentions, there are portions and chunks of scripture dedicated to telling us what they were like, what they did, all this different stuff. Melchizedek has about five verses written about him in the entire book, in the entire Old Testament. Five. That's it. And this portion is so significant, and it's based off an understanding of five verses and the author's interpretation of what that means. Um, so to order, in order to sort of uh, attempt to best understand what Melchizedek, why Melchizedek would matter to them and now for us, uh, we need to do a little bit of history and some jumping around and, and some understanding. So we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, uh, if you went there when I instructed you to. If you didn't, you can get there now. Um, so Genesis chapter 14. This, uh, if you're unfamiliar with this story, I would say that this story is really familiar. How many of you guys have seen the movie Taken with Liam Neeson? Anyone? Yes, some of you. Okay, so in the, movie, in the movie Taken, his daughter gets taken, and he goes after her, and he's like, I have a very particular set of skills, and I'm coming for you, right? And then he clicks, and then the whole movie is Liam Neeson, like, going on this rescue mission for his daughter. This scene, I would say, is something like that. There's this king um, who sounds like a Pokemon, and he atta- his name is Churlo... I'm going to read it. I'm, I'm bad at this. His name is Cherdolomer. Sounds a little bit like Charmander. Cherdolomer. <laughs> Uh, his name is Chertolomer, and um, he, along with a group of other kings, attacks another group of kings and steals all of their possessions and some people along with that. And one of the people that he took was Abram's nephew, Lot. 
And so this is like the Liam Neeson movement where he's like, I have a very particular set of camels and I'm coming for you. And so he grabs 318 of his closest friends and they all go after in the middle of the night after the King Charmander and they wipe him out. It's awesome. It really is. This would be like the best movie. Like it's, it's a beautiful picture of God's strength backing up Abraham to rescue his nephew Lot. And so he rescues Lot. They destroy the kings that, that stole them. And he, on his way back, on Abraham's way back with all of the possessions, his nephew Lot in tow, uh, we meet this character Melchizedek. We'll pick up in verse 17. He said, after his return from the defeat of Cherdolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right, so that makes sense, right? You got this guy, shows up out of nowhere, blesses him, says he's a priest of the God most high, and Abraham's like, thank you for this blessing. Here is a tenth of everything. The only other section of scripture that talks about him before Hebrews uh, is Psalm 110.4, which you don't have to turn there. It says, it's a messianic psalm, and it's talking about what the Messiah will be like, and it says, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't have that memorized. It's on the back screen. Um, there. So he says, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And that's it. That is all the Old Testament says about Melchizedek. And so our deep understanding of who Melchizedek is comes from the author of Hebrews trying to explain why this matters. Now, let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. Back to Hebrews chapter 7. Um, I'm, in a, I'm in school right now, and I am taking Hebrew 1 for the second time. And uh, I was really hoping to use my vast, deep knowledge of Hebrew to explain to you that Melchizedek means king of righteousness, but the author of Hebrews did it already. So let's read. He says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. I like how he elaborates and said it was a slaughter. It wasn't just like a, he got his guys and came back, like he destroyed them. It says, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So I want to pause here for a moment. There are a variety of interpretations of who Melchizedek might be, Um, And so a lot of them come from this passage in Hebrews where it says he's without father or mother or without genealogy. And so people have these sort of interesting ideas where they say, okay, well, because he's like this, who else is like this, not having a father or mother or genealogy? Maybe Melchizedek could be some form of like an angelic being that came down and blessed Abraham. Some people even think that he might be uh, like an embodiment of the Holy Spirit. Um, And some people think that he he might even be a pre baby Jesus, Jesus, right? A pre-incarnate version of Jesus. And there's some interesting reasons for why they might hold that, but I I would argue that the reason why it talks about his genealogy not being without father and mother is very specific, and it's, it's, we get, we get an understanding, understanding the context for which he's comparing Melchizedek to. Um, Now, 
what the author is doing here is he's using the silence of Scripture to make a point. So Scripture, Genesis 14, didn't say that he had no mother, no father, no genealogy. He didn't pull that from Genesis 14. He's trying to say, we don't know where his father and mother are, and we don't know his genealogy, and that's important. And the reason why it's important is because he's saying that Melchizedek is like the Son of Man, like Jesus. And that's a very important point to make. But the reason why it's important, um, we need to go to Luke 24. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, and we'll take a look at uh, why this might be important. If I can find it. Eh. Oh, there it is. Okay, Luke chapter 24. Um, This is where Jesus meets two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And in this section, uh, the two disciples are, are talking about Jesus, and they're very distraught and very discouraged because they expected Jesus to be one thing, and he turned out to be a little bit different. And so he meets them on the road, and he's like, what's wrong? They tell him. And then he says this in verse um, 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted them, all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So right in this moment, we see something very crucial to understand. Jesus is saying, in the Old Testament scriptures, there are things that point to me. And they will give you understanding for what I'm like and what I will do. Which if we were to stop right here and just say... We need to understand that Jesus showing up in the beginning of the book of Matthew and the Gospels is not like, it's not like God made a mistake and was like, oh, I need to fix the the mess that was this was and then bring my son into the world. Jesus was always planned. Jesus was a part of the plan from the beginning. And as we see some of these like ties, we'll be able to be able to draw, we'll be able to be able to, whatever. We'll be able to tie strings from the Old Testament to the New Testament to see how they connect with each other. Um, And what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's saying that Melchizedek is a type or picture of what Jesus will be like, not so unsimilar as some other references that we have. So if you go back to the book of Numbers, go back to, we haven't been there yet. I've been there. Here we go. Numbers chapter 21, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book of the Bible. Numbers chapters 21, and we're going to be in verse 8. And nine. So there's this really wild scene. Um, it's after the people have done sort of like an act of rebellion, and God sends fiery snakes to bite the people, and those, those bites are poisonous, and they start dying. So just a weird picture in general. If you imagine, like, everyone's running around, and there's these tiny fire snakes running around and biting everyone. And so they freak out. They're like, oh gosh, we've really messed up. And they come to Moses, and they say... Um, They say, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who was bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So we have this interesting story. I was, um, my wife and I were talking the other day and she, I mentioned that I was going to talk about this, and her first reaction was like, I remember reading this the other day in one of my like, times of scripture reading and thinking, what the heck is this story doing here? It's like almost, 
out of place isn't necessarily the right word, but it's just like really interesting. It's sort of in the middle of God giving them some instructions. And then literally the next verse is like, number 10 is like, and the people of Israel set out and camped at Oboth. So you're like, fiery snakes, raise up a serpent on a pole, and they get to Oboth. Like it's just this weird kind of interesting point. But it makes sense because this is supposed to be a picture of what Christ is like. And we know this because of John chapter 2. If you want to grab your Bibles and turn to John, oh, not John chapter 2, John chapter 3. I know, it's a big difference. John chapter 3, verse 14. Um, Verse 14, this is Jesus speaking. And he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. So we're beginning to see some of the significance of this action, that this was meant to be a picture or a type of what Jesus would bring in fulfillment. So this interesting scene doesn't really make a ton of sense outside of Jesus being a part of the story. Uh, there's another probably more common understanding, which is, comes from uh, Exodus, but also Leviticus. But we'll just go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. This is um, part of the last plague that was on the people of Egypt. It's called the Passover. If you've been around faith for a while, you're probably familiar with the Passover story. And essentially what happens is uh, the angel of the Lord is going to come over and kill every firstborn who doesn't have their house marked with the blood of a lamb. And it's, an int- it's a weird story in and of itself, but we begin to see later on that this lamb is meant to be a picture of Jesus. Um, in chapter 12, verse 5, he describes the lamb. He said, you're supposed to take your- the lamb will be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from sheep or from the goats. But he he says specifically, it's supposed to be without blemish. Perfect. And later on in the book of Leviticus, we get this picture of Jesus, or we get this other picture of the the lamb that you were supposed to use to atone for sins was supposed to be perfect and without blemish. Now, if you've sung some worship songs, you probably understand where I'm going with this. Later on in the book of 1 Peter, um, which is sort of towards the end, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. Verse Peter, in verse 18 and 19, Peter says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We can sort of see the the connection points between what something, what an action or person or thing was, and how it was meant to be a type, a picture, an image of what Christ would do. Later on in the book of Revelation, there is this, the, the author sees a vision, and what he sees is a lamb appearing as, it, as if it had been slain. And we're, and we're supposed to know that that's supposed to be Jesus. He's a sacrificial lamb without blemish. So all this to say that there are these things that happen in the Old Testament that are meant to be pictures of what Jesus will do or will be in the future, but he is them in the fullness and completion. Uh, we, we'll go back to Hebrews chapter 7. We'll go back there, and we see that what he's doing is he's trying to show us that Melchizedek is a type, a picture, an image that will show us what Jesus will be like, that will show us what Jesus will be like, but Jesus is far better than Melchizedek. Verse 3 says, uh, he resembles the, Melchizedek resembles the Son of God, and he continues as a priest forever. So he's not saying Melchizedek is the Son of God. He's not saying that that Jesus is like Melchizedek. He's saying Melchizedek is a picture of the perfect priesthood that Jesus is going to be about. Now, the reason why this becomes important is because the context for which the Jewish audience would have been reading this is, 
in is an understanding of a very distinct and finite, I guess, I don't know the word I'm looking for, very distinct priesthood. They had a very like concrete understanding of what priesthood looked like based off their Levitical priesthood. And so he's trying to show them, like, you have an understanding of what a priesthood is, but what Jesus is doing is far, far better. Now, the reason why this is important is because we're going to bounce around real quick to Ezra. Go to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 2. The reason why this is important is because he's trying to make the case that Jesus' priesthood is far different from anything that they've ever known. And he, he compares it, he's comparing it to the, the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of, of Levi, the priesthood for the Jewish people. And in order to be a priest uh, in Jewish culture, you had to be of the line of Levi, and you had to be able to trace your genealogy, and your priesthood, if you were a priest, lasted 25 years, and then you were done. Five years of like training, learning how to be a priest, 20 years of serving as a priest, when you're 50, you're done. That's how it always was. So their understanding of what a priest was especially a high priest, was, one, he had to have the right qualifications, the right pedigree, and he ha- it was temporary, and that's what a priest did. In Ezra chapter 2, um, verse 62, um, after, so the people of Israel were in exile for a long time, and they f- finally gotten permission to go back and rebuild their temple. And there were a bunch of people who were like, I'm from the line of Levi, like, I'm going to serve as a priest, let me serve as a priest. And so everyone's like, okay, well, show us the proof that you're from the line of Levi, because only people from the line of Levi can serve as priests. And uh, in verse 62, it says, these sought their registration among those enrolled in, in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. They were kicked out. Not because of, they might have been wonderful, nice people, but they didn't have the right pedigree. And so they said, this is, the priest, this is how the priesthood works. You, you can't be a priest. Which the, the, the converse is true. Even if they were bad people, if their genealogies matched, they could still be priests. There are lists and lists of people throughout the Old Testament who are very bad priests, but they had the right pedigree, and so they were allowed to serve. And what he's trying to say is that the broken, sort of flawed priesthood system is not what you should be thinking of when you think of Jesus being your high priest. He's saying, he doesn't talk about his uh, lineage and say, here's Melchizedek's lineage. He does that for a certain reason. He says, he doesn't, we're not going to talk about his lineage because that's not what qualifies him to be a priest. And there's no succession. So like a Levitical priest, they would die and then someone else would take their position. Or they, they, their time would end and someone else would go. And he's saying, there's no succession. He's without father or mother, without end. His priesthood continues on forever. If that's a picture of what Jesus is like, then Jesus is a priest forever, forever. There's no ending to his priesthood. If he's supposed to mediate between God and man, then he'll do that forever. And he's far superior to the Levitical priesthood, and his sacrifices and the things that he does are way better than the Levitical priesthood. Now, let's keep reading in verse 4. We will, we will at some point this morning arrive at application, I promise. I promise. Verse 4, he says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Um, Some of the nuance of the language, um, he's implying that he gave him the best of the spoils. We'll get back to that later. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
In one case, ties are received by mortal men, but the other case by one of whom is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received ties, paid ties through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him, which is an interesting way of saying because Abraham is the father of the faith, technically Levi, because he's from Abraham, paid ties through Melchizedek. So there's this, this interesting sort of understanding of, of, of Melchizedek. That's not important. There's this interesting understanding of Melchizedek. Um, as this great high priest, um, but what he's doing in this last section, four through 10, is he's trying to show you how Abraham and the Levites are in submission to this high priest Melchizedek. All of this to say, he's already done comparisons of angels and Moses, and he mentions Joshua briefly, and he talks a little bit about David earlier in Hebrews, and he's talking about Abraham and Levi, and he's saying all of these people who are the foundation and fathers of your faith and the literal father of your, of your people, they are in submission to this Melchizedek person. They are lower than him, and if Jesus is better than him, everything is in submission to Jesus. This is sort of like the culmination of all the comparisons we've seen in the book of Hebrews. It's saying any person you could possibly think of that could be considered great in Jewish history, Jesus is far, far better. Okay, I, was, uh, I emailed, I was talking to one of our pastors on staff and I asked him to sort of send me his thoughts on uh, Melchizedek. And he titled it and his subject line, the email back to me was, why does Melchizedek matter? And I think you're probably all sitting here wondering, why does Melchizedek matter? You can, not, you can nod your head if you agree. No? Okay. All right. Um, so the question is, why does, Melchizedek, why does Melchizedek matter? If the author goes through such great lengths to talk about how Melchizedek is like Jesus, and that means that Jesus' priesthood lasts forever, is not bound by anything other than the merit of who he is, and that it's different from the Levitical priesthood, why does that matter? There are a couple things... Um, that I'll leave you with in terms of why this is important. And overall, just from from Hebrews 1 to chapter 7, the first thing is that he picks out every single person that could be considered great in the Jewish faith and says, Jesus is far better than that. He says, in fact, all of these people were pointing to Jesus. And so it would be wrong to elevate those people to a status of superiority over Jesus. And I think that's really relevant for you and I today because it is very easy to look at these men and women and people who have built and faithfully served in our faith and built traditions and built things for us and to hold them in high regard but miss what they're pointing to. In the same way that he's saying Abraham, Moses, and Joshua, and Levi are not your savior, He's also saying your senior pastor, your worship leader, your Bible study teacher, this mentor that you have is not your savior. They will not save you. Your hope and your trust should not be in men and people. They were always meant to point to Jesus. So don't get distracted looking at the people, looking at the people who are doing the pointing. Look at Jesus. The other, um, the other point of importance that I think we can learn from Melchizedek is that He's making the point, and we'll get to this later in chapter 7 next week. He's making the point that what Jesus is doing is bringing in something new and different. And the Levitical priesthood, he'll say later in chapter 7, is actually useless. It's useless. And so if you're imagining, you're talking to Jewish Christians who all they've ever known is the Levitical priesthood, and he's saying, everything you've ever known compared to Jesus is useless. 
For them, all they know is a system in which when I am out of right standing with God, when I have sinned and I've done this, I need to go to the, pri- go to the priests, go to the temple, perform the necessary rituals to be in right standing with God. And what he's saying is, Jesus is far better, his priesthood is much different, and you don't have to keep doing that. In terms of what Jesus does for you, being the ultimate sacrificial lamb, if it's perfect, if he's perfect and his sacrifice is perfect, there's no need to keep going back to him as if you did in the old system. In terms of right standing with God, you can't do anything to get right standing with God. It's already true of you. If you've put your faith in Jesus, right standing with God is true of you. And that's important That's important. I think the reason why I believe that that's important is because for many years, and even I'm tempted to go back to today, for many years, I lived as if I needed to do something to get in right standing with God. Like if I had sinned or messed up or done something or fought with my parents or done something, I felt like I had to to hit a certain list of things in order to be right with God, for God to accept me, for Jesus to love me, for me to feel okay to move and live and act as the son of God. I had to read my Bible for three hours that week. Otherwise, it, like, I wasn't good enough for God. Or I had to spend time praying or more time witnessing. Or, like, I had to really mean it when I prayed instead of the other times where I didn't really mean it. Like, like it's sort of silly when you think about it because we know, like, if Jesus has said, hey, you're already in right standing with me, don't act like you need to be in right standing with me. What I've done is true, and that's how you are. Now, the other biblical authors will warn people and say, this isn't an excuse to continue on sinning. This isn't an excuse to say, I'm good, I'm fine. Like, I messed up, but it's fine. I'll just, I'll keep messing up or I'll, I'll keep not doing what God would have me do. They say, no, you have died to sin, so don't keep sinning. That's not a part of who you are anymore. But understand that you, in terms of standing with God, are in right standing because of what he's done. And so live like that. Live in right, live in right standing because you are in right standing. And that is the motivation to follow God. You don't have to like live in this, like, what would happen is I would get paralyzed Like, instead of living under a true identity of what God calls us, I would become paralyzed in my sin, feeling like I had to do something, and if I wasn't doing something, then I just would get, I'd freeze. And that is not the life we're called to live as followers of Jesus. In terms of right standing with God, what Jesus has done is enough. There's nothing that you or I could do to ever be in more right standing with God or less right standing with God. You're there. Live like you're there. Pursue him. Love him respond to who he is by living rightly. Um, the last one, the last one is um, sort of a res- taking a look at the response of Abraham to this person, Melchizedek. I said earlier that Melchizedek received from Abraham the top or the very best of what he had brought back from that, from that battle. The very best. Now, it could be easy to read the story from Genesis and say, well, Melchizedek blessed him, and so kind of it's like Abraham was giving him a tip. He was like, thanks for the blessing, here's the best. That's not what he's doing. He's not tipping Melchizedek for a good blessing. He is responding to the merit of his character, and out of an overwhelming understanding of who Melchizedek is as someone who is greater than himself, he gives. I, um, I had a friend in college named Sam. I've talked about him before. Um, but Sam was the best. He, he was the best picture of someone faithfully following God. So Sam had this thing. He would spend his like devotional time with God on like a bouncy yoga ball. And so like, and he would bounce a lot while he was in thought. So like anytime I was in the apartment and I heard like, foom, 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 I was like, Sam's praying again, which was a lot. And I'm like, dang, like Sam's praying a lot. I need to pray more. Um, but every time, so he'd do that all the time. But what was really interesting is Sam 
even when he had like a really big test or finals or like 15 to 20 page papers due because he was an English major, would always at the same time prioritize his time with God over anything else. Even if like his own mistakes had caused him to be far behind on things, God came first. And so I had a conversation with him and we were talking about it. And one of, the way he phrases it, that he was trying to be in a position where he gave God his prime time, the time that was hardest to give. The time that like was a real sacrifice for him to give. So he would do it like everyone's going out to lunch with everyone and he's like, I, I've committed to giving God this time that's hard to give. His prime time. And I think in terms of giving, like you could look at this and be like, okay, I need to tithe more. This is telling me I need to tithe more. But in terms of giving, I think we need to view it uh, in, in terms of time, talent, and money. And how, how do you give those? The, the New Testament authors will say you shouldn't give out of compulsion. You shouldn't give out of like sporadicness, but you should give out of a heart that is overflowing with a recognition of who Jesus is, whatever you believe is right. Now that is challenging because for me, it's very easy to give God what's left over or what's convenient to give or when I have enough energy. It's very easy to just say, okay, God, like, you know, instead of looking at my finances at the beginning of the month and setting aside something for him, I I come at the end and I give what's left. But Abraham looked at Melchizedek, recognized his superiority, and gave. Not because of a blessing he received from him, but a recognition of who he was. And in the same way, if there is a call for us this this morning, it is what we give of ourselves for the Lord should be done out of a recognition of who he is. We should look at God and say, you are far superior to anyone else. And you are worth giving my best. Not that that best will save you or put you in better standing with God, but because you are so great, I will give you my best, even when it's hard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, we thank you for the the beauty of your word that you would see fit to give us pictures and images of who you are in the Old and New Testament. Thank you, God, that you are worthy of all that we could ever give you. Not that you need it from us. Not that giving it to you would make us look better, but because this is who you are and it's what you deserve. Would you move in our lives this week, God, as we think about the ways in which we are tempted to give or not give of all that we have. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.